calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. For the next few weeks, we're featuring episodes focused on equity investing. And for today's show, we focus on something that applies well beyond the stock market, overconfidence. Here to help us understand this bias and provide some practical tips for restraining it is Dr. Ryan Murphy. He is Head of Decision Science at Morningstar Investment Management. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ryan Murphy, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Let's start with this term overconfidence. How do you define it? So overconfidence is when a person or a person making a decision or making a judgment is when their confidence, their feeling that they're going to be right, their belief that they're going to be right is greater than their accuracy. And so when there's a divergence between these two things, uh, and that's when we find that there's overconfidence. Okay. So how do you then draw the line between, say, confidence and overconfidence or confidence and simply over-optimistic behavior? Sure. So I think what we would do then is start to look at how accurate a person is and start to gauge that. And that would be a matter of looking at the kinds of predictions they make and then keeping data on that and then bringing that data together with how um, confident they report to be. And so if a person is saying that they're 80% sure they're right, but they're only right 50% of the time, we'd have good evidence of this, this gap, and that would be examples of overconfidence. Over-optimism, I mean, this is part of it as well, right? Okay. So overconfidence, if I understand correctly, can come in many forms. Uh, the three most common being overestimation, mm -hmm. overplacement, and overprecision. Can you help us understand the differences? Sure. So overestimation would be, say, you're trying to make a prediction of some value, uh, some forecast in the future, and your estimate is much higher than that actually is. And so that would be an example of this. Overplacement is an example of uh, relative ranking, right? So if you ask people if they consider themselves to be above average in terms of their skill as a driver, about 80 to 90% of people claim this, right? Which is probably not gonna be the case. You can make people really uncomfortable if you ask a room of people how many consider themselves to be above skill as a lover, right? Above average. Um, people look around the room, about 90% of the hands go up, but something's not quite right there. So these are two examples of this. And the third example you had was? Uh, Overprecision. Overprecision is, for example, if you stood on bathroom scale and it said your weight and then gave the, the number to seven decimal places, right? I mean, this is not really how much it's uh, the precision or the accuracy of the measure there. And when we see the examples of this, it can give people a, a false sense of confidence in what they're actually uh, looking at and what the data means. And so often, you know, approximations are worth remembering that this is an approximate value and isn't precise to this many decimal places. Okay. Many of our uh, viewers and listeners are in the investment world. Why is overconfidence such a big problem in investing? Right. So when you think about I mean, the basics of investing is you have to know what, what's the probability and what are the payoffs. And if people are overconfident in estimating the probabilities, they can get that really wrong. And if they're overconfident in estimating the outcomes, they can get that really wrong as well. So overconfidence can lead people to make bad positions, bad trades, and also not understand the full downside risk that's inherent in some of the positions they hold. 
Do we see more overconfidence in investing than in, in other professions? That I don't know the answer to. So I mean, these are really different domains. One of the, the sets of data that I'll, I'll present in the talk here today looks at different uh, professions. And there, there's some evidence that um, from the medical profession that there's, uh, when we look at the calibration curves that come out of doctors making particular diagnoses, that there was a very high degree of overconfidence in this particular set. Interesting. Can you walk us through uh, some of the research that's been done uh, on this area of overconfidence? Sure. So some of the research is uh, experimental, and so this is where psycholo typically psychologists are looking at people's confidence levels, setting up experiments, measuring their accuracy, and bringing these two together. Uh, there's a whole host of research along these lines. Um, some of it goes back into the 60s, some of the classic studies are starting there. But some of the more interesting research is coming from the field, looking at different professor or professions and experts in different domains, and determining the degree of which their confidence actually matches up with how accurate they are. So one question I often think about is whether there's a gender bias when it comes to overconfidence. Well, it's complicated. So I think that there's, I think the intuition people have is, I presume, is that you would think men are more overconfident. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so there's some evidence of that. So Terry O'Dean has this classic paper looking at people's trading behavior and finds that men may be exhibiting more overconfidence by overtrading. And there's other interesting data sets that have looked at the kinds of words and verbiage people use. Uh, and women, it's, it's the results show, tend to use words that are a bit more vague in terms of probability, softening their predictions in some way. Uh, that can both be good and bad and maybe even unintended consequences of uh, two people being equally sure of the information, but one using inf the, the words around it a little bit more carefully. Okay. So a few years ago, we had uh, Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman speak at one of our conferences, and he says that overconfidence is the bias he would most like to eliminate if he had a magic wand. Um, but he also acknowledges that it's built so deeply into the structure of the mind that you couldn't change it without changing many other things. So, so with that as the caveat, what are some practical tips for restraining or countering, I'm assuming one can't really eliminate, overconfidence? So I think for me there would be two avenues I would approach it. One is making people aware of this natural tendency people have to be overconfident and highlighting that and bringing that to their attention, making them aware of that. I think that's necessary but not sufficient to really combat this particular bias. I think with that would be setting up particular kinds of feedback mechanisms and training for people to keep really good data and be able to provide information to people to find out how well they're actually doing. Uh, and that kind of individual level tailored feedback can be useful to help uh, people learn uh, that they might be really overconfident and start to get closer to better calibrated. I think that's one of the things that we can do when we work in groups. We can set up a culture that allows for people to be challenged and also that we, you know, that we are able to express uncertainty without it looking like a kind of intellectual weakness. It's okay to say, I really don't know. And I think that's a, it's a valuable thing to build up, but it's hard, easier said than done. Yes. So as investment managers uh, or financial advisors, we're often asked by clients for our best market forecasts. Mm -hmm. uh, what can we do to improve our forecasts? Or perhaps we should try to dampen our clients' expectations about the validity of forecasting. Right. I, I think some people may be under the mistaken impression that good investing is about knowing what the future holds, like there's some sort of crystal ball that we would look into. And I think that's just that's 
not the case at all. And I think helping dissuade that misunderstanding is useful and can help investors focus on the sorts of things that they do have control over. Um, it's really hard to know what the markets are going to do, but they certainly have control over their contribution rates, how much they're saving toward their goals, and also their asset allocation, which can have a large effect on their experience in their portfolios. So I think that that, that reshifting of attention to the sorts of things that they actually do have some capacity to do something about. I mentioned before Denny Kahneman and his magic wand, and I'm wondering if you had a magic wand, what's the bias that you would most want to eliminate in investors? I think there's a closely associated one, which is called the confirmation bias. And so this is people's tendency. They have some sort of hypothesis or thesis in their head, and then they seek out information that confirms that particular belief. And that, I think, can be pretty nefarious um, because it can lead people to you know, marshalling evidence that only supports their viewpoint when really there could be a lot of evidence that is contrary, but they're not looking for it and so they don't find it. Uh, technology um, actually may start to make this worse and because when you start to imagine people using something like Google, they're searching for something they already have in mind. So Google can help guide them maybe in getting the spelling right, but it can't guide them to say, you know, here's other evidence you should consider that might help you have a more balanced viewpoint. So to wrap up, you're an expert in overconfidence. How confident are you that you're an expert in overconfidence? Um, yeah, an expert, maybe the expert, right? Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'd say I think that there's there's a certain amount of humility that is that that I be, take on as I start to study this more. Um, I think as you start to see lots of data around this, you start to very quickly realize that it is a very deep bias that people have. And I think that that is worth remembering. And I think that, how do I know? Well, I think part of it is data. And I think we keep really good records of the kinds of predictions we make and then try and bring those, you know, what we, what we thought like two months ago and then what, what I think now and what the data has revealed and, and be able to update that. And there's lots of uh, suggestions that exist for people to say, you know, write down your predictions, put a date next to it, and then go back and look. I think if you do this, it's hard not to be humbled by it because you can look at these things and say, I really thought that three months ago. Uh, and I think that that kind of process helps make people uh, better uh, calibrated and also gives me confidence in uh, trying to understand how this process works. Okay, Ryan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.